You're listening to Liberation News, the newspaper of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Monica, and I'm speaking to you from Atlanta. I am a member of the PSL, and I want to welcome you to the fourth and final installment of Black Struggle is Class Struggle hosted by the PSL. I'm so happy to be a part of this, this digital class series that is intended to uprise Black revolutionary history in this country, its central role in the development of society today, and to underscore the idea that revolution is possible within the United States. And now I'm going to pass it to Nino to introduce today's session. Peace, y'all. How you doing? My name is Nino Brown. I'm organizing with the PSL Boston branch, and I thank y'all for being here. So as y'all know, we in the Party for Socialism and Liberation, we know firmly that there can be no socialism without liberation and no liberation without socialism. And this understanding is a fundamental tenet of the PSL's Marxist-Leninist ideology and practice. And for us, the struggle for Black liberation has been and currently is one of the sharpest class struggles in the United States. And this struggle has often played a vanguard role in the multinational working class struggle against capitalism and for socialism and national liberation. The PSL has always insisted that Black people in the United States were forged into a distinct nation by the shared experience of oppression and resistance between 1619 and 1896, of course, to this day as well. And we consider the struggles of Black and other colonized peoples as struggles from capitalist society, not an integration or a seeking peace within it. For us, there can be no liberation without socialism. We also know that the Black working class is a powder keg for revolution, and the ruling classes know this. This is why they try to whitewash Black history why they go to such lengths to create illusions of Black inclusion. The ruling class denies both separatism and democratic integration. They have failed to complete the revolution that was the Civil War and Radical Reconstruction. And they most certainly will not allow us, allow for us to have a separate state, right? So we realize that our struggle cannot attain independence, freedom, or equality as long as capitalism and imperialism exist. And this is why Mao the Chinese Revolution said, we did not seek revolution because we wanted Marxism. We sought Marxism because we wanted revolution. So this class will speak to the notion that there can be no Black liberation without socialism and no socialism without Black liberation. So could I have a volunteer to read this quote by Karl Marx? The discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. All right, awesome. Thank you, comrades. So, I mean, many of us who have grown up in this country have had to recite the Pledge of Allegiance in school, and we would often have to say, one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. And oftentimes we take for granted that the United States, Britain, Canada, and France are all nations, modern nations that were born out of the development of capitalism, coming out of European feudalism in the 1500s. And the rising class, the bourgeoisie, was made up of manufacturers, European manufacturers, industrialists, big plantation farmers, owners of the modern means of production. And they sought to expand their wealth through the pursuit of greater and greater profits, according to the logic and natural laws of capitalism. And this led to wars that established new borders, created new nations, and ushered in a new era, this colonial era, an imperialist era, or period or chapter of history, if you will, in the development of human society and human history. 
So the national question and national oppression are not only about global South nations and whether or not one is a colored person or a person of color, so to speak. National oppression is a fundamental feature of capitalism and its expansion and growth all over the world. Capitalism is built off of the fierce competition of you know, a handful of Western European nations, including Japan, which has colonized entire continents, eradicated entire civilizations, empires, but also creating new nations, new empires of colonized and subjugated nations and oppressor and subjugating nations. And capitalism's internal logic of capital accumulation forced it to chase these profits all over the world, leading Western capitalists to develop as oppressor nations dialectically producing oppressed nations. So for us, national oppression of a people means that all classes of a people are oppressed by another nation's bourgeoisie. So today, workers and property owners in the oppressed countries are both subjugated by huge banks, corporations, and governments in the United States, Germany, Japan, and other big imperialist powers. And for us, it's in this context that we study the national question, because we know that nations have not always existed, and the history of modern nations, given its intersection with the birth of capitalism, is often obscured by the capitalist class. And Marx remarked wisely that the ruling class's ideas are often an era are determined, right, or defined by the the ruling class themselves, those who own the means of production also own the means of intellectual production and thus define to a large extent the social phenomena that we encounter. And as Marxist-Leninists, a scientific socialist, our theory has shown that no social phenomena can be properly understood without taking into account its historical development. We don't see nations as a phenomena that have always existed, nor are all nations the same. The Black liberation struggle is a struggle, a movement for Black liberation because Black Americans are not just workers who happen to be Black or have Black skin. And the white monopoly capitalist ruling class, it's not that they just hate our Blackness, but it's because Black workers are super exploited above and beyond the normal rates of exploitation of white workers who are part of an oppressor or white or Anglo nation, but whose class interests lie with the working class nonetheless. Building for revolutionary change in a nation like the United States means that we must take into account how this country formed. Previous classes have demonstrated that the enslavement of African peoples and their struggle for self-determination and recognition of their own humanity is also a struggle of a subjugated nation within a nation. The time has long passed since one could really naively believe that the United States exists with liberty and justice for all. Today, even children know that America is not America, right? That there exist parallel realities shaped by histories of slavery and genocide as the founding principles of American democracy. Now I want to talk about the formation of African Americans in this country as a distinct nation, because it's often ignored by liberals and even some of the most ardent fighters against racism, right? So this is a mistaken view that we are workers or people who just so happen to be Black, right? It's kind of a half-truth. Yes, Black people are in the main working class, but our particular social and historical formation as a distinct people has laid the basis for our nationhood. African Americans were forged into a separate nation by their particular history, their shared experience in the United States, tracing back to the earliest forms of capitalism in the United States, so growing rapidly out of the plantation system in the antebellum pre-Civil War South. And this plantation system relied upon chattel slave labor to produce agricultural profits from the land, which was ruthlessly stolen by early white colonists through the genocide of many Native Americans and the forced displacement and dispossession from their own ancestral homelands. And millions of Africans from different regions were brutally kidnapped and brought to the United States to work on these lands, right? Now, these Africans spoke different languages, practiced different religions, had different cultures, 
engaged in separate economic activities and came from distinct tribes and nations. And white slave traders abruptly stole them from all this and sold them into slavery. And in the United States, enslaved Africans were forged into a new nation, the Black nation, right? African-American nation. And this displacement and genocide of Native Americans and slavery provided much of the initial material wealth of the U.S. ruling classes, which is predominantly white. And the creation of the Black nation was fundamental to the development of capitalism in the United States, period. Slavery was the earliest form of institutionalized oppression of Black people in the United States. And, you know, for us, although slavery no longer exists, the institutionalized oppression of Black people continues to this day. So we're going to watch a video before we start the video. I want to give some context. It's a Vox video, and Vox is, they're not Marxist-Leninist or anything like that, right? But just as a preface to this video, the ruling class, they have their own conception of Black people, right? They push this idea that we're race and deny nationhood. And this Vox video is going to detail some of the facts of Black people's distinct formation as a nation within a nation, just based on these historical facts. That's not the conclusion they're making, but the facts, they're there. They're just, it's ideological suppression, right? Showing that Black people are oppressed wherever they are in the United States of all classes, and that this is what we mean by national oppression. So as we watch the video, I want you to think of how does this video and the facts it introduces and the development that it shows, how does it relate to what we've been studying, the idea that Black people are a nation within a nation, an exploited working class? This map shows the Black Belt of the United States. Its name comes from the fertile soil associated with the region. And for most of America's history, more than 90% of the country's largest minority group lived here. Starting in the early 20th century, nearly half of the African-American population left this region to resettle in emerging northern and midwestern cities. It was one of the largest internal migrations in U.S. history, and now data indicates that a new movement is taking shape. To understand why, let's go back to 1865. The Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery and started a new era for colored people in the states. Shortly after, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments enfranchised people of color at large. For the first time, the majority of Black Americans controlled their own destinies. In the years immediately following emancipation, most freed slaves chose to stay in their communities. After all, the only America they had known was the South. It was common for their descendants to work as sharecroppers on plantations. Sometimes their only payment was permission to live on the property. But that wasn't the worst aspect of the South for Blacks. The Jim Crow caste system determined where you could eat, what platform you stood on when you were catching a train. This was a rigid caste system in which any breach of the caste system could literally mean your life. That's author and journalist Isabel Wilkerson. She spent 15 years compiling the stories of Black exodus to cities in the North, Midwest, and West. The movement would come to be known as the Great Migration. The Great Migration was really a seeking of political asylum within the borders of our own country. Many of them were fleeing for their lives. They were fleeing a caste system, a rigid caste system known as Jim Crow, in which everything that you could and could not do was based on what you looked like. In 1915, African Americans began to leave the Black Belt for these new industrial centers. By 1929, 1 1.5 million African Americans had resettled in new northern metro areas. At the time, America's participation in World War I drove demand for manufacturing labor. But strict immigration laws left northern factories with a shortage of workers. Factories in the north started recruiting low-skilled workers from the south. The workers faced discrimination in their new homes, which culminated in the Red Summer of 1919. Migrant blacks, whites, and European immigrants were all competing for limited housing and resources 
which exacerbated relationships in city centers. The most prominent of these settlements for migrating Blacks was New York City, and the art, music, and theater that emerged from this community became known as the Harlem Renaissance. These artistic achievements redefined the cultural image of Blacks in America. But the stock market crash of 1929 and ensuing Great Depression slowed the influx from the South and effectively ended the first migration. A second wave began in the 40s when World War II kickstarted manufacturing again while agricultural employment in the South plummeted. Once again, people living in the rural South began to migrate to cities. Manufacturing hubs in the West were far more prominent in this second movement, but only a fraction of skilled labor positions went to African Americans. That kind of discrimination was a common experience for participants in the Great Migration. Throughout history, the segregated neighborhoods that Southern Blacks flocked to often became the ground centers of massive, racially motivated rioting. In most cases, the protesting began in response to perceived unfair treatment of the Black community. This is a trend that continues today, as seen in modern violent protests in Baltimore, Ferguson, and Milwaukee. By the end of the second migration, an estimated 5 to 8 million Blacks had resettled outside of the South. Moving ahead to the 1960s, the Civil Rights Movement had introduced a new vision of racial identity in America. This movement's leaders argued for the equality of all people. Meanwhile, the definition of all people was changing. Changes in immigration policy starting in 1952 started a new era of skills-based multicultural immigration. This includes African migrants adding a new Black perspective to the American story. By the 1990s, a new multicultural American identity had emerged. During this period, the rise of the Black middle class was evident. You know, we're used to thinking about white flight to the suburbs and Black segregation, Black concentration in cities. That's the voice of William Fry. He's been tracking the shifting demographics of America over the past five decades some degree that still exists, but there's also been a noticeable movement of blacks to the suburbs, and it's fairly pervasive. It's not just in two or three cities, but it's in, in a lot of cities across the country, northern cities, southern cities, western cities. African Americans started to make this move, especially in the last 20 or 25 years, uh, really large numbers of blacks moved to the south. I attribute some of it to younger generations, several generations since the civil rights laws were enacted in the 1960s who now do have an opportunity to get advanced educations, at least some college. And, you know, getting that foothold into the middle class, I think, is an important part of what's going on. So now I'm going to just sum up and pass it off to Theron to address one of the points someone raised around coming out of the breakout groups around whether or not the terms of national oppression are still relevant. If you look at a situation like the Palestinians who aren't just workers who are oppressed but or exploited, but also oppressed wherever they are, in their own lands that they have still, and also on the stolen land that Israel occupies. And similar to how, despite the fact that Black people have migrated massively to the suburbs, the video talks about how the rebellions of Ferguson, which most folks couldn't locate on a map, are still powder kegs of Black and working class revolution because of the persistence of national oppression, despite, you know, whatever supposed geographic integration into suburban America that may have taken place. So I just wanted to read this quote from Harry Haywood, his book, Negro Liberation. It's free online on Marxist.org. This is from chapter seven. He says that the policy of Jim Crow prescription of America's black folk has resulted over the years in the shaping of the Negro as a distinct economic, historical, cultural, and in the South geographical entity in American life. The Negro is American. He is the product of every social and economic struggle that has made America. 
But the Negro is a special kind of American, to the extent that his oppression has set him apart from the dominant white nation. Under the pressure of these circumstances, he has generated all the objective attributes of nationhood. The entire development of Negro music, literature, poetry, and painting of churches, fraternal groups, and social societies bears the imprint of this struggle for liberation. The psychological as well as the economic need for continuous struggle to gain equal democratic status, to throw off the oppressive chains and assume the upright posture of a free peoples is and has always been the dynamic of Negro culture. So I'm going to pass it off to Comrade Theron. Thanks, Comrade Nino. I'm Theron, PSL member in Detroit. And I'm going to build on a little bit of what Nino said about how Black people constitute a separate nation, as well as talk about how the Black struggle ties into other struggles based around these three ideas of issue-based struggles, super-exploitation and colonialism slash imperialism, and Black struggle and working-class victories. So prison abolitionist and prison scholar Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore says that capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines inequality. The inextricable nature of capitalism and racism means that confrontation with the forces of capital necessarily has to mean confrontation with white supremacy. And over the summer of 2020, we saw just such a confrontation with capitalism and white supremacy during a months-long roiling rebellion against the capitalist state with the National Guard, local police, and fascist paramilitary groups deployed to silence the righteous inundation of the people. Although the bourgeois media might reduce the cause of the rebellion to a simple matter of reaction to a murder committed by the police or reaction to a verdict exonerating a killer cop, socialists have to understand the roots of black rebellion actually run much deeper than that. The rebellions over the summer took place in the middle of pandemic that disproportionately affected black people. The pandemic had this disproportional effect on black people because of more black people working in person in what's called essential worker jobs, precarious jobs that are unlikely to provide health insurance that also provide lower pay than white-collar jobs that allowed only about one-third of the working class to work from home and minimize exposure to COVID-19 virus. And also because more Black people were living in homes where they're poor and Black workers, if they're fortunate enough to have a home at all, because so many workers were evicted and displaced as a result of the economic crisis and the lack of action on the part of the government. The protests obviously sparked international rage and solidarity actions, demonstrating not only that Black people in the United States trapped in this prison house of nations have a just cause, but also that the character of white supremacy is transnational, whether it's France, the UK, or South Africa, or elsewhere, the specifics of the situation might differ, but the general strokes of white supremacy are much the same. As Audre Lorde says, there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we don't live single issue lives. The black struggle connects to the struggles of other workers and oppressed people because the struggles of black people and the struggles of the worker are the struggles of the worker, and then some intensified by the super exploitation of racial capitalism. There can't be any separation between the black struggle and the issues of the working class, although socialists trying to build a revolution in the heart of US empire have to give special consideration to the national question as it relates to the black nation. In the rebellions of summer 2020, a broad swath of demands emerged largely under the umbrella of the demand to defund the police. These included increased funding for public schools, universal health care, prison abolition, among other things. What this tells us is that when black workers are in motion, the struggle of the entire working class is in motion. And in the history of the United States, working class, many of the most important victories for working and oppressed peoples have been won as a direct product of black struggle. In 1866, the National Labor Union was created. The National Labor Union was the first labor rights group organized on a national level in the United States. And the formation of the National Labor Union was in large part a product of increased confidence of the working class and its ability to pursue better conditions because enslaved African peoples had just been liberated a year earlier at the end of the Civil War, and that was a struggle that began with the general strike of the slaves 
You can read more about that in Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois. Then in 1925, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters was formed, which challenged the terrible conditions for train car tenants working in George Pullman's luxury railroad line. This was the first Black labor union to issue a significant challenge to a major U.S. corporation, which was a major step forward for the labor movement at large. In 1964, Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, which, contrary to popular belief, was not just a project of social reform, but also a project of labor reform. And union activity was a crucial aspect of the growth and power of the civil rights movement. And definitely the benefits of those labor reforms were by no means limited to black workers. As Professor Kimberly Crenshaw says, the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action have been Euro-American women. So the message here is clear. When black workers win, the working class wins. Here I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically on the right of nations to self-determination. This slide actually takes its name from a crucial text by Lenin on the national question that was included in the pre-readings for this class. Comrade Nino has discussed at length already what it means for Black people to be a separate nation and has given a Marxist historical account of how the nation came to be. But as a quick recapitulation of these ideas, Stalin's Marxism in the national question defines the nation as a historically constituted, stable community of people formed on the basis of a common language, territory, economic life, and psychological makeup manifested in a common culture. So the Black Belt of the Southern United States constitutes the common territory, Black America is our community, Black English or African-American vernacular English is our common language and our historical constitution economic life, originally as people enslaved in the transatlantic slave trade and now as super exploited workers, is also shared amongst the vast majority of Black people in this country. This is the materialist basis on which we assert that Black people in the United States constitute a separate nation. But in order to better understand how socialists in the United States should approach the national question, it's useful to consider how other socialists in somewhat similar conditions have approached the question. In the Russian Empire, Lenin and the Bolshevik Party also confronted a set of conditions in which the working class was divided on the basis of nation. The Russian Empire constituted what's called a prison house of nations, with hundreds of oppressed ethnicities and nations contained and oppressed under the great Russian nation. In order to forge the class unity required to construct a union of Soviet socialist republics, the Bolshevik Party determined there was an absolute necessity to support the rights of nationally oppressed people to self-determination. A union constructed on the basis of the existing relation between the great Russian nation and the other oppressed nations would have been easily broken by the ruling class. There would have been little reason for oppressed peoples to support a nominally socialist party that would have kept intact the national chauvinism they experienced under the Russian empire. Similarly, any socialist organization hoping to build revolution within the prison nations we call the United States must give a special consideration to the question of the black nation and must support the right of black peoples here and around the world to chart our own national destinies. And I'll pass it to comrade Monica. So I will be getting into kind of dual character of black nationalism. Now, if you're on this class, you might be close to or already a socialist. So it might not be all brand new information for us, but I think it's important to discuss the dual character that black nationalism can take in all nationalisms, really, proletarian ones. So first, I'll talk about neuro-nationalism. And there's obviously a progressive aspect to Black nationalism insofar as it has historically been a vehicle to increase political consciousness within our race. Similarly to, we referenced Mao already, lots of nations that are colonized and the Black nation being something of an internal colony in the United States, inherently super exploited within the system, the nationalism of an oppressed people that increase consciousness of themselves as a united people with similar experiences that are not simply because of their faults or because of a deficiency on any individual's part is definitely progressive in, in increasing the consciousness of the people 
And therefore, being that powder keg that we aforementioned for struggle in the U.S. at large. But when I speak about narrow nationalism, some people seek to putrefy that real need for people to have a consciousness that develops in order for them to be able to seek power for themselves. So many of us are familiar with Claudia Jones's work. Many of us are aware of how much she has done to increase the struggle in the United States, to make the Communist Party something that actually could appeal to Black people. But she initially was not a member of the Communist Party. She was a Trinidadian immigrant. Her parents were working class, and she had joined the African Patriotic League. But that African Patriotic League, which came to be in the 30s in Harlem, it was sexist. There was the understanding of the national question of Black people being an oppressed nation that needs to seek power, but it did not spotlight the contributions of women, and it did not respect women as it should. So she had to leave that in order to get to a higher level of awareness and be able to do the work that she did. Nowadays, we can see many reflections of that same misguided move to recognize that Black people need to make something for themselves, but going only on the basis of race and ignoring gender and sexuality. I don't know if some people have seen the new initiative. I saw an ad with Jesse Williams of ER or whatever and Killer Mike, and they're going for a Black-owned bank. Post the transformative rallies and the rebellion that we had last year, using this swelling of consciousness to advertise for a a Black-owned bank and saying that we need to take power for ourselves in that way. So all of these are bastardizations, frankly, of what Black nationalism can be for us. It's a colonial mindset, frankly. When people want to seek to limit nationalism to something where we can only discuss race and we can't discuss gender or sexuality or we're distracting from that, we know that those things are ludicrous on their face. They're usually just a cover for someone's homophobia or sexism, but they're also not the real heritage under which Black people come from. My first bullet here references a book called Invention of Women by Oweyumi, but she traces the history of gender basically. The Yoruba nation in what's now Nigeria, when they were being approached by the soon-to-be colonists, there was not a word for woman and man. They did not have that root of man. In our natural, more collective nations, we did not have where a woman is subservient or a woman is something that grows out of man. That's a colonial, that is a specifically Western invention and Those who we see nationalisms in the neo-colonial governments of various countries now in Nigeria has a very deep-seated misogyny in its laws. And that is not because Black people are inherently more sexist or more masculine. It is because the colonial powers went and violently created and enforced gender roles in order to separate us and in order to make us easier to colonize. So I think it's an important fact we're socialists. We have so many reasons for not being, I'm a Black woman. There's so many reasons for not being sexist, for understanding the importance of women, of gender-oppressed people, of non-normative sexualities. But in order to actually reach liberation, our heritage as a Black nation, it does not include sexism, these normative ideas that are inherent to capitalist society. They are not our heritage. In order to actually honor our ancestors, We cannot take in these reactionary views. It's actually flying in the face of what our people's history actually is to engage in that sort of behavior. So to talk about real liberatory internationalist nationalism, we are socialists. In the PSL, we believe in the actuality of revolution 
And we believe that we need a, a mass socialist program to be able to bring about revolution in this country. And while colonized nations such as Black people, we find socialism, we find some sort of new system anyway, searching for liberation if we talk about colonial struggles in Africa and Latin America, but the rest of the country, they might be a, a bit behind us. So the only way to actually reach liberation for Black people is socialism. And our task is really to create the nationalism that actually does something for us, that actually works for us. Our task is to connect the struggles of Black people across the world with our struggle here stateside in order to increase the consciousness of who we actually are and who our enemies are. So if I discuss Claudia Jones as a case study again, her and many of her sort of, I guess, class of contemporaries who joined the Communist Party, Black women, they increased their consciousness of imperialism, of what the world was facing with the fascist invasion of Ethiopia in the 30s. So that shows what imperialism does. That Ethiopian nation being a Black nation was a good example to increase that consciousness and increase the people's political development. All right, so as I discussed a bit, there's a class struggle in the Black liberation movement. We have many misleaders, many people who seek to use our historic symbols, use the heritage and the true respect that we have for our development, our strength, our resistance as a people, and use that for things that will only lead us to destruction. As some people mentioned, we might believe we might be taken in by representation, by Kamala Harris becoming the vice president. When we have congressional Black caucuses, when we have various overtures that are made to Black people, it seems like there might be hope. There seems like there might be something on the horizon for Black people within this nation. But as a proletarian nation, as an internal colony on which the system of American capitalism, the initial wealth and the billions that the ruling class is able to glean from mass incarceration. It's a contradiction. It is not something that can be resolved in the system. The United States needs an underclass of Black people to function. So when we have Black power fists, we have, unfortunately, Nancy Pelosi in uh, Kente Claw. We have Kamala Harris putting up strange kind of propaganda videos. I don't know if people saw those celebrating Kwanzaa as a child even though her mother was not Black and her father was Jamaican, so highly unlikely that they were celebrating a Black American holiday. And there's, you know, these seek to lull us into a false sense of complacency. Oh, they're just like us. But Kamala Harris, other people for ill, Jesse Williams, Killer Mike even, they have different interests than us. So while they may have gotten a piece of the pie for themselves, insofar as they do anything for us, insofar as perhaps this administration, they don't seem to be on a great track, but it is just administration does something like passes the Equality Act or passes another sweeping Voting Rights Act to kind of undo all of the blatant repression and suppression that the Republicans have done in the voting process. Even if we get something there, even if we get a reform, even if we get Medicare for all, it's only pushing the can down the road. There is nothing in the American system that can actually integrate Black people fully into the society. We necessarily stand outside of it. So any of these symbols, like I said, I'm from Atlanta. For a couple dollars, I did work on the runoffs with the Democrats. So I unfortunately have become far more acclimated to their, their wiles than I would like to be. And we had plenty of symbols of how hard the ruling class has to work in order to make us believe that there's something for us within the system. So the Georgia runoffs, they talked about 
We have the first Black senator from Georgia. We have, when we had these two seats, how important it was for us. We have the deification of Stacey Abrams as someone who has done so much to turn out the vote. When really, whether it was Stacey Abrams or someone else, with an increased time of the contradictions of capitalism showing themselves and the unrest that that brings, things like taxes and stuff like that, it's on full display, the decay of the system. The people would search for something. The people were more likely to go out and vote because they knew that Trump, there was really kind of off the rails there. But Stacey Abrams herself, it's not that she did some Herculean task and made it so that the dumb Blacks voted or whatever. The people wanted something more. And because we have had decades and decades and centuries, really, of being told that we can get something from the system as long as we press the button and we integrate ourselves, this is what led to the victory, not the action of one person. It's the expression of a political will by Black people. I don't know if, if these things were publicized nationally, but there were cartoons with strippers, you know, Atlanta's the stripper capital of the country, commercials with strippers with the tagline, get your booty to the polls. So I said, don't forget to register the vote. And there's women twerking, like we're stupid, like we're dumb, like, you know, we need a shiny ball in front of our eyes in order to be part of the political process. I believe that this runoff election was the most expensive in like American history. I think John Ossoff himself spent like 300 million. And obviously the South particularly is a place where we have been left behind in this pandemic. There is no aid. There is nothing except for, you know, a bunch of mutual aid and things like that, which are only a substitute. They also kick the can down the road. There's nothing for Black people. So many people have have thousands of dollars and back rent due. Millions of people are at risk of having their utilities shut off. And the eviction rates are higher for Black women. So we have basically been left to die in this pandemic. And they spent hundreds of millions to get a victory for people who won't even overturn the procedural rule that would preclude $15 an hour being included in Joe Biden's stimulus bill. Because there is no will. They have inherently different interests than we do. So every time we get caught up in the symbols, how it looks to have, you know, a Black president and then a Black vice president, how there might be a hint of pride if you are someone from an HBCU or an AKA, like my stepmother. There might be a hint of pride in that and seeing that the, one of the highest offices of the land is by someone like you. But, you know, it doesn't take long at all for them to show themselves as not really committed to our freedom. So every time we spend several de decades working and building up the Democratic Party to win victories that they don't do anything with, we waste time. There was also like several rap shows. And I remember seeing a flyer and it said, listen to the mini concert by rapper Mulatto. And then we marched to the polls. And I, I think that I don't know how it wasn't ludicrous on his face to many other people, but it's an in infantilization of Black people, that we need our hands held. And we love rap music and strippers and hot wings. So that's how they get us to the polls. The reason why the voter suppression happens because Republicans are able to run unchecked. But people, when I did outreach, I've, I've done many jobs for a check, getting people registered to vote for this general election. A common thing I heard was, they're not going to do anything for me, Biden or Trump. And I would agree because my manager was not around, but people know that the same thing happens over and over. Joe Biden, of course, even if they had gone with Bernie Sanders, but they went with literally the most non-inspiring candidate they could have. But people are familiar with Joe Biden. Joe Biden has never 
done anything for us. He's never been an inspiring figure. He's never been an activist. And that is the, the scraps that the Democrats threw at us. And now we are listening to rap shows and saying, vote Joe Biden. It's a farce. And our task is really to show that there is another way and that this way is only going to waste our efforts for years and years and years. You know, there was the common, let us have our joy refrain. Like, we're just going to celebrate this day and then we're back to the work. Unfortunately, that does not seem to be true. The people that I saw celebrating in the streets on their Instagram stories are definitely just chilling now. But if we allow ourselves to be pulled in and made to be quiet about what's happening, because some people need to have their joy for a day, we need to really ask the question, whose joy and to what end? If you have petty bourgeois ideals, if you have that class position where you're better off slightly, that might be more joyous to you that you might really see yourself. But we as communists, we are focused on the most poor the most dispossessed, those with no rights because they're they're stomped upon and left for dead. There's no joy in seeing Kamala Harris be elected for those people, but we are made to to be distracted. And all that this really is is a distraction. We don't have masses in the streets right now. We've talked about our Mystica, our gorgeous Mystica video, had the, I I forgot how thick some of the protests were, like how many thousands of people were out there day after day. And that energy is really, it's gone. It's in the Democratic Party. In Atlanta, we have seen some of the biggest protests now are just simply people holding Democrat signs, taking pictures with city council people, one of which she seems to have called herself an advocate for Rayshard Brooks, who was killed in my neighborhood. He was the reason the Wendy's was burned down, his, the site of his murder. We went to a press conference recently, and she was wearing $1,400 Chanel earrings. Now, my neighborhood is fraught, you know, with homeless people. There's a homeless encampment like 100 yards from where she was standing. And she is talking a lot of flowery language that we need to make this work for us with no mention of the people who are left to the elements, who are left to the lack of a social safety net. And when we talk about Black nationalism, she should not be able, we need to take it back. She should not be able to comfortably wear her kente cloth power suit and Chanel earrings. We should be laughing these people out of town. Not laugh if they don't go willingly. We need to take them out of our spaces because they only seek to distract us. They only seek to steal our power, to steal our energy. And I think that we cannot allow these symbolic wins to be what pushes us into complacency over and over again. Those of us who are already socialists, we probably have noticed this pattern, but we really have to go out into the people and say, you know, when you hold up a Black power fist, what does that mean? When you wear an Afro and show and you love your features as, you know, we're a bit past that, but what does that mean? What are we calling back to? We're calling back to a real heritage of struggle, a real heritage of art and culture, a real heritage of understanding our place in this society and that our place in it is at the bottom inherently. So now that some of us have gotten to be a bit more comfortable, there's this idea that we can have pride in our race just in the way we wear our hair and just in the clothes we wear and just in showing up to some of these protests. But as long as we are in the party of slavery, in the party of segregation and allowing our efforts to be put through them, we will fail. Word. So we're going to move on to this next section. We're going to be discussing why Black liberation is only possible through socialist revolution, Marxist internationalism and the national liberation struggle, white capital and white supremacy, 
nationalism's reactionary and revolutionary, some of which we've already discussed. So I'm going to start with these quotes by Friedrich Engels and Karl Marx, two of the founders of scientific socialism. Engels says that no nation can be free if it oppresses other nations. Marx most notably said, uh, commenting on the civil war in the United States, in the United States of America, every independent movement of workers was paralyzed so long as slavery disfigured part of the republic. Labor cannot emancipate itself in the white skin, where in the black it is branded. So we live in the leading imperialist country in the world and deadliest in history. And the superstructure of this society is white supremacists, patriarchal and anti-communists. It means that the laws, the religions, the culture, the schools, and the general historical conception of this country are shaped by the fact that at the base of society rests this socioeconomic relationship born off of that initial birth of capitalism from colonialism as Marx examined, and now takes on new forms in the era of imperialism. At the base of society, we have the contradiction between labor and capital, right? This is what determines exploitation. Also means, you know, we have socialized labor and privatized profits. That's a fundamental contradiction of capitalism. And given the history of how the United States and United States capitalism has formed, the primary contradiction that the United States working class faces is not solely a struggle on the basis of economics, the exploitation of workers, but the struggle for the recognition of humanity and self-determination of millions of working class people from oppressed nations, not just Black Americans, but Puerto Ricans, Hawaiians, and so on. So the American capitalist system pushes this idea that racism is a stain on American democracy and that the formal legal rights for Black people should suffice in solving their problems. But the bourgeoisie knows that Black people are a nation within a nation and that they are a political powder keg that could spark revolution and lead the multinational working class to victory. We in the PSL, we have always insisted that Black people coming out of this forging into a new nation from 1619 to 1896, we consider the struggles of Black and other oppressed nations as struggles for liberation from capitalist society, not an integration or seeking peace within it. So just to reiterate, right, that there can be no liberation without socialism. And Marx's own theory and practice elevated the consciousness of the working class movement when he posited that the English workers could only be free when the Irish are free. In fact, Irish liberation was a precedent for their own. Just to go back to, go back to that, that quote, right, labor and white skin cannot emancipate itself while labor and black skin is branded, which is important for understanding working class solidarity and the interests that we have is common as uh, exploited workers. Vladimir Lenin, one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution, or the principal leader of the Russian Revolution, taught us that in the era of imperialism, which is also the era of proletarian revolution, one of his greatest contributions to Marxism was his view on the national liberation struggles. He fought for the view that all legitimate national liberation struggles by oppressed nations against imperialists and oppressor nations deserve support regardless of the leadership of those struggles, understanding that a defeat of imperialism is a forwarding of the global class struggle for working class. So some tendencies of Black nationalism in some parts of the left say that because Marx was a European, he had nothing to say of the oppression and exploitation of colonized and oppressed peoples. Now, this flies for truth or even common sense in some in the United States and, and the West, but paradoxically, this same anti-communist behemoth, right, the United States fought tooth and nail in the so-called Cold War, which was really a global class struggle, which, you know, was, if folks are not familiar with this idea of the global class struggle, it was in reality a war uh, on the third world and the revolutions that resisted imperialism 
during the so-called Cold War were all influenced by socialists and revolutionary Marxists and Leninists from Korea to Vietnam to China, Cuba, Mozambique, and many more. Too many people have not really just even investigated thoroughly into Marx and his politics to claim that when he conceptualized socialism, he had no understanding, let alone commentary or analysis on that of colonized people. Some even go to the extent to say that we can learn nothing from Marx and that there's some other form of socialism that we can do without the methods and theory that developed from Marx and Engels' work, which is a continuum, right? It's not a final prediction. One such person who exemplified a critical realization of the role of socialism or, you know, scientific socialism or Marxism in the struggle for liberation, despite whatever the popular conceptions, is Asada Shakur, right, in her autobiography. She says how initially she understood communism and why she shifted as she studied revolution more. And just thinking of that quote, like Mao Zedong said, we found Marxism because we wanted revolution, not vice versa. So Asada says, I wasn't against communism, but I can't say that I was for it either. At first, I viewed it suspiciously as some kind of white man's concoction until I read works by African revolutionaries and studied the African liberation movements. Revolutionaries in Africa understood that the question of African liberation was not just a question of race, that even if they managed to get rid of the white colonialists, if they didn't rid themselves of the capitalist economic structure, the white colonists would simply be replaced by black neocolonists. There was not a single liberation movement in Africa that was not fighting for socialism. So when we think about Africa today, that's hardly a common conception, right? That there was not a single liberation movement in Africa that was not fighting for socialism today, seeing as how that global, that Cold War was really just a repression of the struggle for socialism and liberation. So socialism belongs to the people, right? To the workers and oppressors of the world. If it were true that Marxism is a white Eurocentric ideology and incompatible with anti-colonial and anti-imperialist struggles, then why has not a single Western European country embraced socialism? Why is it that every revolution that led to some type of socialism occurred outside of Western Europe and the United States? Socialism took root internationally, not in the developed nations, but in the super-exploited, colonized ones because imperialism was naked there. It was at its weakest. The same could be said of the domestic situation in the United States. The African-American nation is predominantly working class and has historically played the vanguard role for their entire U.S. multinational working class. We've said that the black working class, now we've said, we've seen, just last year is a reference, how the black working class is a powder keg for a revolution and the ruling class know this. This is why they push all kind of milquetoast black reformist politicians as a way to keep us within the boundaries of the two-party system, particularly the Democratic Party. But we know as Marxists, as scientific socialists, that socialism takes root wherever there are oppressed and exploited people fighting for better lives. It's a law of history that wherever there is oppression, there will be resistance, and anti-communist ideology from the left or the right seek to further cleavage workers from an ideology, from a theory that was born out of their own struggles. It seeks to rob us as a working class people of a vital weapon in the class struggle, continuity of thought and practice, which we know is, is praxis. In order to pacify this resistance, our ruling classes use anti-communist propaganda, which has always had a strong racist and sexist current within it to avert Black and colonized people from the weapon of theory, as Amilcar Cabral coined. In 2011, a Pew Research Center found that 55% of African Americans have a positive impression of socialism, and 36 consider socialism negative. So today, that percentage is 65% for Black people, and 52% favorability for socialism compared to just 35% for whites. So who is really afraid of socialism and Marxism? Who benefits from pushing this notion 
that socialism, specifically Marxism, has no connection to our conditions or fight for liberation. The material basis for multinational unity will exist so long as capitalism and imperialism exist. It is capitalism that robbed many of us and brought us to this country by way of direct force or coercion. Capitalism is decreasing the wages and overall living standards of all workers to the point where workers in the global south and north are in fiercer and more direct competition with each other. Now, more than ever, there is a need for unity of the bottom of society, of the poor and dispossessed. We have the opportunity to learn from history and improve upon what our political ancestors have done. The historical benchmarks are the Communist Party in the 1930s in their heyday, the Black Panther Party's Rainbow Coalition. And we as you know, revolutionaries in the PSL, we believe that when we each accept the responsibility of resolving the contradictions among the working class who are divided ideologically and materially in thousand and one ways, we have to build this unity in such a way to strengthen our capacity and confidence to fight against a common foe. That common foe is the ruling class. That is not only the most violent and brutal and abusive in history, but also sophisticated and smart in preventing the consolidation of a broad working class revolutionary political pole. They're experts in diverting people's outrage into atomized pockets of resistance where they're more easily controlled or, or bought off and repressed. We understand that in order for socialism to come to fruition, there needs to be Black liberation. So we just wanted to summarize here, going back to that initial notion that we cannot have socialism without liberation and liberation without socialism. Liberation without socialism is no liberation at all, right? Because capitalism makes separation not a real option, really. They're also not integrating Black people into the United States, despite the fact you know, that they have many Black faces in high places, as we saw in Baltimore, Ferguson, and even some of these Black suburbs of which the civil rights movement has just went over. Ferguson ruled by a dominantly white political establishment. On the converse, that there will not be any socialism without liberation because it's the struggle for a Black liberation that has been the sharpest class struggle, because Dyron has said, that has forwarded the entire multinational working class to victory in our lifetime against capitalism and imperialism. Great. Thank you, Nino. I'm going to play this video from Lovecraft Country, if some of you have seen it. Just to set the tone a little bit, I want us to pay attention to the James Baldwin voiceover in the beginning. It goes back to exactly what Nino was saying. The only way the Black people are not integrated into the society. We don't exist, as Baldwin says. So uh, you go ahead and. I'm not real, I'm just like you. You don't exist in this society. If you did, your people wouldn't be seeking equal rights. You're not real. If you were, you'd have some status among the nations of the world. So we'll both miss I do not come to you as a reality, I come to you as the myth. Because that's what black people are, myth. 
I got curious. Now that you've named yourself, we can fully integrate you into our society. You no longer need the devices on your wrists. Is the change permanent? Yes. And if I don't change, can I go back through that portal that brought me here? Back home? Yes. We can send you back to your Earth. Feels like the wrong word. How can I fit in everything that I am now? <laughs> Into that place. That Hippolyta. She was so small. She needs me. Hmm. All right, thank you. I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit here. Of course, this is our class for Black History Month, but I want to talk about Black futures a little bit. Some of you may have seen that show already and know the context. Hippolyta is the wife of a character on there, and she gets this storyline where she gets to time travel, and she has a scene where she learns to fight as Amazons, and then they go to war with American expansionists and stuff. It's really cool. But the way she's talking about, you know, she's floating in the air, there's this godly being in front of her. She's learned so much. She's expanded that she's named herself. So reading a lot of, you know, we have Baldwin there, drawing upon readings from Kwame Ture and stuff like that. He describes in Black Power and the beginning of Ready for Revolution, how in the schools, the show takes place in like the 50s. Black people were not taught their history. They were not taught that they certainly were still not taught that we're a nation. We're taught that we're people with dark skin and oh, bad things happened. And now we have equal rights or whatever. But we also are not taught, we're not taught about our history as Black people and our heritage and the culture and how that is intrinsic to our people, integral to our development as a people in all of the different places around the world where we exist. I want to talk about this because we can't see the ground of Afrofuturism, of understanding culture and the arts and things like that to the liberals, to allow them to just kind of give different ideas of what Black futures can be, take the ground away from communists because Really, Afrofuturism, only communists can lay claim to it. Because in order for us to, I would define the term as the looking forward of what Black people can be. You saw some aliens in that video. The ideas of how our people can take shape in a world in which we are not under the boot of oppression so deeply. And as communists, we know, and we have to make sure that everyone knows, the only way that we can get to that ideal future, get to a future in which we are not stamped down, we are not made to hide, we are not made to change ourselves in order to fit this exploitative system that can only happen through socialism. As we've discussed, we can only get our liberation through socialism because they won't allow separatist movements, nor will they actually integrate us into their system. So to see a Black future, a gorgeous Black future full of wonder and untold possibilities, we have to have socialism. 
To the right here, we have a photo of June Jordan's disappeared in the 1965 issue of Esquire. She discussed it. This is an idea of sky rises in Harlem as a place where, you know, Black people, these tall buildings are high rises where Black people could live for free. And because she walked around, she lived in Harlem and she saw the plight, the disease, the sadness that the people who built New York, who built this country, the way that these communities that built up after the Great Migration were left to rot, really. She drew this as a picture of something as a federal reparations for those years of plight. And it was falsely attributed to some men in the article, but June Jordan, the prolific writer and poet, was also trained as an architect and and drew this photo. So I'm going to discuss here, out of the Black Futures book, there's a story about how she came to draw this and, and imagine this for our people. And it made me think of reading Black Power by Kwame Ture and how he's discussing the struggle for, this place in several different locales, the struggle for community control of schools. In New York, there was not a high school in Harlem for a time. And so people were left with the choice of go to a white school and fight for spots there and allow our schools, the, the smaller, the primary schools, uh, to fall to disrepair. Of course, all through history, Black schools, because of the racist way these things are administered, always have falling apart books, falling apart facilities, things of that nature. And there was never a successful push for widespread community-controlled schools where we can have schools built in our communities and be part of the administration of these facilities. And we also never had a place where free housing that doesn't have craggy sidewalks that end in somewhere and you have to walk on the street that has paths and greenery and safety. We've never seen that in a city center because explicitly the interests of the ruling class, those who make the decisions, if they have a Black face there, the interests put forward can only be the interests of the ruling class. Whether there are some small reforms, there will never be a place where people get free housing where people are able to control where their children learn in their schools, control the school experience for their students, for their children, until we take power. And every way, every campaign to make ourselves ungovernable, to make ourselves integrated into the Democratic Party or request some sort of accountability, it might last for a little bit, but it falls short. Because this country, the system, capitalism, does not allow for cities and schools that feed Black people. We can talk forever about how schools are sites of indoctrination, sites of fitting people to a very narrow box, which doesn't include arts, culture, and political consciousness. And we can talk about how cities that are environmentally sound and make sense density-wise, they aren't built. Those are several other class theories in themselves. But for Black people, if we even ignore the ways that these issues intersect for us, there will never be a place in which we get free, high-quality housing. because. Black people are the underclass. We are a colony within this nation, and we cannot have a beautiful Black future under capitalism. So I put Poetry is Not a Luxury out of Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde in the supplemental pre-readings. The quote I have there, possibilities neither forever nor instant, really spoke to me as the actuality of revolution. So many of us are probably already aware of the power of Audre Lorde's words, but poetry and art and music, the things that are always present with Black people, the gorgeous threading of words are decentered. We're told that they are just kind of to the side, things to enjoy, sometimes a hobby. 
But these things, there's a quote lower here at the bottom of the slide. It says, this is poetry as illumination. For it is through poetry that we give name to those ideas which are nameless and formless, about to be birthed, but already felt. As communists, we believe that communism is the highest stage of existence for humanity. We believe that all of us are, to different extents, alienated, atomized from our communities. We are not allowed to thrive and to nurture the things inside ourselves, the things we feel intuitively, the things that we can't give an explanation for, but we know doesn't feel right, or it does feel right, the things that aren't profitable for the capitalists. Those things are pushed to the side, but we feel them because Black people are a heritage of the religions that people in the global South, it comes from Africa, it is filtered through Latin America and the Caribbean. And we have these practices that are deemed demonic, are deemed niche. These things are our heritage because we have connection to, to the earth. People inherently should have. We have connection to the earth. But the Enlightenment thought, the liberal ruling class thought that has been pushed upon us is rationalism, that all of these intuitive feelings we have are not real. And the religions, the practices that we come up with through hundreds of years of struggle, of passing down, of verbal interplay, that these things are fake. And the only things that are real are the search for individual fulfillment and a moralism that is based upon the laws of the land. And those things are actually not what humanity should strive for. We should be able to build and draw and create ideas of a society in which all of us can connect with each other, cannot be afraid with each other, can build with each other. And possibility is neither forever nor instant. We're at different points of the movement always as time progresses. And you set the stage. Every time that we build a movement, we do outreach, we do cultural programs to entrench ourselves with the working class, with our people. We set the stage for revolution, for Black futures. But as long as, you know, if we fail to, I think it's inevitable that humanity will reach past this epoch of capitalism that is sending us all to our graves. It's inevitable. But in our lifetimes, we can see, we can feel when we're fed by our actions, we can see a Black future for us. We can see what life could be like if we had self-determination. But we have no ability to reach there. We have no ability to reach our full selves without revolution. Just to finish up on the slide, reactionary nationalism is a distraction. It'll lead to destruction of our efforts. Many of us know that Claudia Jones aforementioned was the founder of the Notting Hill Carnival in the UK after she was deported for her communist activities in the US. And that is a part of our national consciousness as Black people. Carnival and various festivals, these are how our identities are able to be entrenched and to be understood and to be loved rather than demonized as it had been for so long. And had there not been a communist party, had there not been her political awakening because of the fascist intervention in Ethiopia, we might not have that peace. So wherever we see narrow reactionary nationalism, whether it's supposedly just focused on the woman question, or if it's bourgeois and feeds into the machinery of American capitalism, we are wasting time. We are pushing ourselves away from a gorgeous Black future in which we can name ourselves, in which we can become so much more than what we are limited to in our overexploited jobs. So this is going to bring us to the end of today's session and the end of the Black Struggle is Class Struggle series. but. All endings can lead to new beginnings. We appreciate everyone for joining us for this critical series. We all hope that these classes have not only 
deepened your knowledge of the Black struggle for national liberation, but deepened your commitment to struggling for Black liberation at large. National oppression is essential to capitalism, thus the enemy of self-determination. Black liberation is class struggle because Black freedom, Black futures cannot coexist with capitalism. You can read more at liberationnews.org. You can follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Spreaker, and other podcast platforms. And follow us on social media at PSL Web.